So let's imagine for a minute that you're going to plan a trip through Africa. You're going to be a few months at this thing, six months, maybe more. You want to explore all Africa has to offer. You want to ride steep mountain passes, explore the lesser traveled roads, visit remote places. You want to see wildlife and culture. You have no intention of sticking to the roads. You want to explore everywhere. In fact, you have a, a very loose itinerary because you're traveling solo and you want the freedom to jump off your plan at any time an interesting opportunity presents itself for you. So I have to ask you now, which bike would you choose to ride on this adventure? And how would you go about deciding which bike is best suited for the adventure? A lot of things come to mind, suspension travel, weight and, and capacity, and can you pick the bike up? But let me ask you this, would you consider the perfect motorcycle to take, or would you even consider taking a 1951 Harley Panhead hardtail? Hardtail meaning no rear suspension. Well, that's what Gareth Jones decided to take for his African adventure. In fact, for Gareth, the question of which bike to take never showed up on his radar. He knew the 51 Harley Panhead was perfect for the job. Perfect for him. Now, if you find yourself sort of scratching your head and wondering how he could justify that or who would consider taking a 51 Harley Panhead on an adventure through Africa, you probably forgot to factor in one of the most powerful emotional states a person can experience. Passion. And when you're passionate, you don't need anyone else to tell you what direction to go in or even what bike to ride. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Hart. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Uh, I'm Gareth, Gareth Jones. Right, uh, I'm Gareth Jones, and I'm from a little town just outside Cardiff uh, called Barry uh, in South Wales. Um, and I am now uh, recently retired, early retirement, but I was uh, a milkman. I ran my own uh, dairy um, milk delivery business uh, with my brother, family business. Gareth, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Good now, to be here. I'm intrigued, the milkman thing, because, you know, I, I picture this traditional milkman. Maybe it's just stuff I've seen in movies or whatever, you know, the white outfit and the, the cap, and you're bringing up bottles of milk to the door. But somehow, I think it's probably not quite as romantic as that, is it? Um, you're pretty close. Um, the, the, the white tunic and cap have, have long gone. 
Um, but we are still completely a traditional business, uh, running the little electric milk floats um, with the rattling crates on the back. And, and yeah, pretty much that is oh, delivering really? glass bottles of milk mainly to uh, to the doorstep in, in across our community, um, and which is actually going, even though I'm not there, I'm still part of the business, um, uh, is, is going surprisingly well. We've been the right people in the right place in this particular torrid time of ours so uh yeah it's actually uh we've done we've, we've done okay out of it as and providing a service for the community which was well needed so yeah we're very pleased but yes completely traditional wow that's really neat so you're actually going around with, with glass bottles of milk putting them there and then picking up the other ones and taking them for recycling yeah well not recycling uh, reuse so, so they oh, don't so that's go in what, a bin. That's, sort of, they, that's what I meant. I meant to re- recleaning. I guess that's the wrong term. Yeah, right? yeah, they get cleaned, yeah. and and so uh, we always used to say. I mean, the world has finally caught up with the milkman because we've been using electric vehicles and you know recycling, returning bottles, uh, and obviously home delivery for, for well, our business is is nearly a hundred years old now. Um, wow. So uh, we've been doing it forever, and now suddenly the world is finally caught on to. It's not a bad bad way to live your life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's 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 quite interesting. So, um, where does a motorcycle come into life for you? Well, I, I think um, I've, I've been riding motorbikes uh, all my life, so all, uh, pretty much all my adult life. I've had a fascination with bikes and and cars, but bikes were my were my passion. Um, so I, I've loved motorbikes um, since I was seventeen, eighteen years old. Um, and I've loved traveling on motorbikes from the day I got on one. So, uh, uh, so yeah, it's a, a, a very long time riding. So I'm I'm now fifty six. So, uh, yeah, yeah, fair old, uh, fair fair few miles under the belt now. <laughs> so, so you started traveling right from when you first started riding. This, this is this something you've been doing for a long time? Uh, pretty much. I, I, I've always had kind of fairly hopeless motorbikes. So um, travel then was an adventure, just getting out of the sort of hometown. Um, but yeah, I think, my, in fact, the first motorcycle trip I did uh, was from Barry to Glastonbury Festival. Um, and I was on a little 125 on L plates um, and shot off on my own. I, don't, I think I'd only had the bike about three weeks. Um, so yeah, it, it's... it's, it's Riding it to festivals and and um, getting abroad was took a bit longer, but uh, uh, certainly all my first motorbike trips were pretty much to music festivals. So it was a great way to get there. <laughs> Dodge queues. Yeah. <laughs> so you you have a uh, a 1951 Harley Panhead. How did how did you get a hold of that? Well, okay, so. Um, I'd always had bikes. I got into love classic bikes. My first bikes were all Triumphs uh, for Meriden, um, but I always loved Harleys. Got into Harleys, uh, built a, a few or modified a few uh, Evo motored Harleys, but I'd always wanted a Panhead, um, and I turned my Evo into as close as I could get to it being a Panhead. And in the end, I thought, Panhead's the bike I want. I, I'd, I'd, I'd lost a. Uh, a family member and inherited a little bit of money um, and I managed to get hold of it. Um, It wasn't an original bike. It was a bit of a bitzer, but it was a running running bike. Um, So I managed to get hold of that from up in London and brought it back. But I always had in mind of exactly how I wanted to build it. And I always wanted to build it with overland travel in mind. 
so it's 51 based but it's so modified um, that it, you know it's far, far, far from original. But then I haven't cut up an original or done anything bad to an original to, to, to ruin it. If you see what I mean? It was <laughs> so it was a bike guilty. which was going to end up. Yeah, yeah. I, it was going to end up in the bin sometime. So I've, I, I'd like to think I've kept it going. So for those who don't know, what what is a panhead? So a panhead is uh, all the earlier Harleys were named um, uh, by the shape of their engine. So uh, you have a, a shovel head. So the top parts of the engine, the top of the cylinders, uh, they look like um, upended shovels. Uh, a pan head is exactly what it says. It looks like the top of a, of a pan or, or a pan. Before that, they were knuckle heads, which looked like knuckles. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, but it's, for me, it's the iconic Harley. It's the one they used in Easy Rider. Uh, they, Lee, um, Lee Marvin used it in the Wild One. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just the it's just that iconic uh, iconic Harley. So it's not like it has anything special about it, like you know a, a really a reliable engine or anything like that. It's, it's more of the historical significance is what interests you with it. Yeah, I, each each new model tends to get better, um, but if you if you look at the at the um, sort of history of Harleys, the the Panhead is sort of the first of the. I would say the modern engines. I, I'm no expert. I'm not. I, I mean, I'm, there's many people who who will have a lot more knowledge on it than I would. Uh, than I would. But um, yeah, Panhead. You can you can fit more modern oil pumps on them. You can you can uh, upgrade them to to a fairly good modern standard. Um, but it still feels like a big old big old classic. We'll say. Well, describe what this thing looks like. <laughs> um it's it's far removed from uh today's harleys um and, and i have nothing against today's harleys they but they just don't appeal much to me uh it's sort of a lot smaller um it has no shiny bits on it um mine is particularly used and abused um from its journey and journeys beforehand uh it's a rigid frame so there's no suspension on the back it has hydraulic forks on the front um, hence, it, it's its actual uh, name uh, from Harley was a hydroglide, and and the history there just very briefly um, for people who don't know is a hydroglide. It meant that it was rigid rear frame and uh, hydraulic front forks. After the hydroglide became a duo glide, where they uh, upgraded it with rear shock absorbers, but still the hydraulic forks. And then after that, they fitted an electric start, which then became the Electroglide, which most people probably have heard of. So that's the sort of timeline with it. So mm. it's uh, it's a very basic motorbike. By saying Hydroglide, they make it sound like, well, I guess it's the glide word, but it makes it just sound like it's so smooth. Um, it's smooth, it's, it's, it's fairly thumpy, but actually it's possibly the most comfortable bike I've ever ridden, even with no suspension. It's, it is supremely comfortable. Just to clarify that, that, or just to, to qualify that statement, you have ridden other bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I have. I mean, no, uh, on, on uh, to put it into context, uh, the, the, a couple of years after I did the pan trip, I, I rode a, a, a new Tiger 800 XCA from London to Cape Town. Um, and, I, and much as that was an amazing motorbike and, and I loved it, it was great. It was nowhere near as comfortable as my, as my pan. 
<laughs> what, what makes it comfortable? I mean, because look at you're, you're describing a bike here with no rear suspension to any modern <laughs> rider today. They're going to listen to this and think this guy is off his rocker. There's no way this thing could be comfortable to ride. Yeah, it is. It is weird. I've, I've ridden rigids for quite some time now. Uh, rigid being um, the, the name for um, a hard tail or rigid frame. Um, I've ridden rigid, for, and, and I, I I quite like them. I mean, if you hit a big bump, yeah, you you, you certainly know about it, and, and it was challenging in some of the more extreme off road sections that I did. But it's it runs a um, a pogo seat, so the, the the seat is a big old tractor seat. And that, that's amazing. It's a big old leather tractor seat, um, uh, which just cradles you. Um, and then it's on a uh, seat post, which is sprung. So it's basically like a pogo stick. And there's, uh, how many, about six springs in that. So you can tailor it to your weight. Uh, you can alter it. And, and they've, they've, you know, they've, they don't break. I mean, one of the things about overland travel when I started going to Horizons and Overland and, and watching uh, presentations is everyone moaned about doing Africa trips that they blew their shock, absor- shock absorbers up. Well, I solved that problem. <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> so so this, this hardtail, is is there a method to riding this? I mean, is that how you find it comfortable? Because you're talking about the spring seat with no rebound control on this, by the way. Um, no. So this is just a spring. <laughs> just my weight. <laughs> which is why you're referring to it as a pogo stick. And then you've also got some fairly high profile tires, which are definitely going to absorb uh, a considerable considerable amount of bump. But is, is it technique? Um, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no riding guards by any shape or, or, or form. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's, I run, I've got 16 inch wheels front and back on it, uh, with vintage style tires. Uh, so going into corners, you, you have to manhandle it. Um, but I have quite wide handlebars. So it, it, it rides really well. You've got to be conscious. You're always on the lookout for drain covers or, or any bumps in the road. Uh, and if you hit them hard and at speed, you bounce. But then you do on pretty much any bike if you hit something hard enough uh, and it's it's solid enough. So, yeah, you're conscious of it. But there, there isn't anything in particular. I mean, it, it suits me and I've ridden it a long time. I've had it for 23 years now. So I've had that particular bike and I've set it exactly how I would like to ride it. And the handlebars are just, if I have, you know, I've got them exactly as I want them. Um, the, 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 yeah, just, I love, I absolutely love riding it. And I think that's, that's my purpose for, uh, taking it on that trip. Uh, this is your only bike. It it was for many years. Um, but before I, um, did my Africa trip, I was concerned that it would be, I, I spent many years honing it to make it reliable enough to do a big trip. It started off fairly horrendously. Uh, and I'd break down a lot and it would be a pig to start. Um, but each year it got better and better and better. But I was still a little bit concerned about uh, how it would cope in an African environment in particular, uh, running vill- village fuel, the heat, the dust, etc. Uh, so I, I actually went and bought, I, I was sort of looking for a second bike because I was using it uh, back and forth to work a fair bit as well. And uh, I thought actually it'd be nice to have something a bit easier for back and forth to work. So I, I ended up buying a, an old 91 uh, GS100, uh, air-cooled 100, um, which is, a, again, a wonderful bike. Um, but I was very pleased when I took the pan 
we call it destruction testing in, in Morocco before I, I shipped it out to Southern Africa. And uh, I was very pleased when I did that trip and came back and thought, I can, I can take the pan. I don't have to take the GS. Well, well, that engine, if I remember correctly, all those old ones, they're, they're low compression on it, like seven to one compression or something like that. So, so fairly low. They, 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 you'd think they would handle the, the, the poor octane fuels better. Uh, well, they do, and and uh, it is it is a, a robust and simple uh, simple engine. Um, but mine, because I can't leave anything alone, mine is all is not what it seems, uh, and I have uh, a stroke of cranking it, uh, which makes it a bit more beefy mm, and uh, cams and yeah, everything which can be done. So actually, it's the, the motor's fairly um, punchy, a lot more than it would be standard. Uh, which probably isn't the best thing to do for a, for a high mileage trip around, uh, <laughs> well, anywhere. But but actually, it, it, it works fine. It, it does work, and it's great fun. While you were roaming around in the in the, the back roads of, of where you live, delivering milk, you, you somewhere along the line came up with an idea to uh, to ride South Africa. Where did that idea come from? What, what made you want to do that? Oh, I think that, that's been in me since probably I was a small child watching. Dactari. I don't know if Jim, you 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 ever got Dactari in 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 Canada, but it was a kids' television program about a safari guide in Kenya, probably, um, and that fascinated me. So I've had a fascination of of Africa uh, since I was a since I was a youngster. Um, so I'd always wanted to be to to travel there, and as I say, add add a motorbike into the mix, and that, and that's my uh, vision of heaven, really. So it was it was always on the cards i'd go I'd, I'd do the sort of yearly trip to europe uh for different events or or just head out of the alps and the pyrenees and the dolomites so every year uh, we'd head out um around europe usually myself and a couple of mates um so i traveled a lot around europe and anytime we got anywhere near the spanish sort of southern Spain, I would always try and persuade my friends that we needed to go to Morocco for many years. And uh, they always said, no, we'll die. Um, <laughs> we, we can't go there. And they, they, they were fairly hoodlum mates. So uh, it was it would always shock me, just come on, we can do this. Um, the fact they don't really serve alcohol, they probably put them off as well. Um, so, but yeah, at the first given opportunity, um, where I'd always wanted to do it, sometimes and I think like a lot of people you, you you want to do it but you don't think other people do it and you can't for for whatever reason and um I think I think um my inspiration was probably amongst many but Sam Anacom's book uh, and into Africa book in particular um was a revelation to me that that um I, I, I very luckily call Sam a friend now um but uh I read that book and went uh, a normal person can do it, and and if he can do it, I can do it. Um, so and and that was that that sort of made my mind up. I was I was going to do it. I vowed I'd do it before I was fifty as well. Um, life and work got in the way an awful lot um, that I couldn't do it uh, earlier. But at the first given opportunity, I I, I managed to go. <laughs> so what was the overall plan with this? <laughs> well, I I. I, I, I'm not good at research. I'm not good at tech, as as, as you know <laughs> now from trying to set this up. Um, uh, I'm not good at tech. I, and I purposely don't really like uh, making a major plan. Uh, I don't want to see stuff on a, on a screen. I don't Google stuff too much. 
um, uh, uh, before I go. I had a rough idea of, you know, some of the iconic places I wanted to go to, um, but also riding an old motorbike. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't do a charity event with it as well or, or do anything for charity is I was confident the bike would make it, but if it, it you know, any given stage, something horribly wrong could, you know, could go wrong with it. Something horrible could go wrong with it. And I'm not fixing that in the local dealers. Um, so I was very aware that you just got to go with the flow uh, with it. So I didn't have a massive plan. My original plan was to do north to south. I, I, I always like the thought of opening a garage door and riding to Cape Town. Um, but unfortunately, a bowler had hit the year I could go and I was penciled in. I managed to book sort of six months off from work uh, there was a no option time scale I had to go then and Ebola would hit uh, one side. The Syrian war was making it easy, uh, quite hard on the other side and carnets and things like that for Egypt were going to be troublesome. And uh, so it, I ended up flying the bike to Cape Town, slightly disappointed that uh, I, I was sort of cheating. But having since done north to south and you know the trip I had. I am so glad I did because I, I had the most amazing time. There was not a day I didn't enjoy. So um, it, yeah, it was it was so. I, I, there was no plan. Ship to Cape Town. Head up to Horizons event, which was the first uh, Horizons Unlimited event in uh, Africa, which was just south of Johannesburg. So yeah, rocked up there on my on on my old, old motorbike, and and pretty much every single person there was either on a uh, a GS. Or yeah. a KTM. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the first. Let, let's just get the the rough plan of like. Were you looking to just do a loop and go back down and then and then ship your bike back? Was that it? Yeah, kind of. I I I'd figured the the I'd been in touch uh, with Motor Freight, who who had fl flew the bike out, and and it made sense that I just did this big big loop. I mean, I I, I had this this. Uh, romantic idea of, of going up as far as Zanzibar. That had been a, a word in my head since I was about eight years old that I thought it'd be quite a fun place to go to. Um, so I wanted to get to Zanzibar and then it made sense. There was so much to see in Southern Africa that you could loop around there 20 times and still not see it all. So I, I was quite happy with that. I knew I was never going to go head home from Cape Town. It was always going to be a loop. Mm. So in your prep, as you're getting ready to go, you, you spent some time putting the idea together and probably talking about it to um, people who are interested in going to the HU meets, things like that. When, you, when you're telling people about it or when you even arrived at that uh, the first HU meet in Africa, of course, that's a little different because you're actually on the trip. But, but in particular beforehand, did people sort of raise their eyebrow or, or you know, make comments about your choice of motorcycle for the adventure? I think the first year I took the bike up to, uh, we had the big hub meet in Donington in those days in, in the UK. And I took the bike up there and usually it's very well, very stripped down. The whole bike comes apart, all the luggage and everything comes off with two Allen screws, basically. So I, I, I always run it with nothing on it um, because that's how I like it. And I took it up there and, and I was pretty much ignored other than about three people who kind of went, that's a bit unusual for here. Um, the following year I went or maybe a year or so after I'd just come back from Morocco 
uh, it was the year I went on the trip. So 2014, I'd just come back from Morocco and it was still covered in dust. I left all the luggage on it. I'm not good at cleaning it. Again, I'm not your typical Harley rider. I don't do shiny at all. Um, no offence to any typical Harley riders, <laughs> but it's not my thing. Um, and I, I had it parked up. I got asked to put it in. Uh, we have, I'm sure it happens in most Horizons meetings, you have like a, a an area for all sort of strange bikes or travel bikes to to congregate and people can save some wandering around the campsite. So I was I was quite flummoxed that they asked me to go and put my bike in with the uh, with the rest of the bikes. And, you know, there was Sam's bike there and probably Tiff's bike, um, you know, all these amazing travel machines. Um, and then my strange old Harley, which I really didn't think fitted in at all. And I'm, I'm happy with that. That doesn't, you know, I don't purposely do it, but I'm comfortable that I don't always fit in the right place. And um, and lo and behold, I won sort of uh, audience or, um, you know, uh, public uh, travel bike award. Nice. And, and suddenly everyone came up and chatted and it, I was just kind of quite strange. And so, yeah, to win it in a, a, a win that award in a travel event was quite kind of a bit uh, ironic, I thought. But, and people to ask me, what are you doing? You've come back from Morocco. What's, and I sort of tell them the plan. And and that's how Pan Without a Plan came about is uh, they said, well, we want to follow the trip. Well, I'd never put, I, I don't think I was even on Facebook. I, I didn't have any uh, sort of social media awareness or anything like that. I didn't do it for any, any of that reason. But I thought, well, you know, a few people seem interested. I was inspired by going to those events and and, and reading about people and, and their books and whatnot. So I thought, oh, actually, I'll, the day before I left, I um, I set up the Pam Without a Plan uh, Facebook page, thinking it would just be a few friends and family. Um, and then, yeah, <laughs> you go on the trip and life changes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I'm going to put some photos in the show notes of your bike. And um, the bike is very unusual looking in particular for a, for a travel bike being that it's a Harley low slung um, straight bars on it or straightish bars on it, some leather bags and a, and a hard top or sorry, a hard case on the back. And, and I think yeah. on the trip you've ran with a, a roll on top of there, but I'll tell you from my point of view, it is a very cool looking bike. It is a very interesting bike and it looks like something that I would love to ride around on. But having said that, it certainly isn't a bike that is suitable for running off road, uh, any, any sort of dirt or any sort of rough sections by most people's standards. I'm just going to qualify that with that. <laughs> when you were planning this trip, were you planning on doing off road or were you thinking just stick to pavement? Uh, no, I, I, I definitely wanted to do uh, a, as much off-road as as I and the bike could cope with, I mean that's part of the joy of of, of Southern Africa in particular. Is you know there's there's miles and miles and miles of super highway off-road. Uh, you know for big adventure bikes in particular, it would be amazing. Um, but even on the pan, it, it, yeah, there's plenty of places you can go. It's it, I've taken it on a few um, trail days uh, um, in the UK on on smaller events. Uh, and it does surprisingly well. Uh, ground clearance is always going to be the issue with it. Obviously, road tyres as well. But actually, it sat. I, I did quite a few thousand miles off road on it on that trip um, on the desert. Once I'd remembered to put the tyres down, I run very low pressures in the tyres anyway, so I only run about twelve psi in them. A um, little bit more with luggage on the back. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, 12, maybe 18 when I've got luggage on, and I was dropping them down to about eight 
for the desert. And I that it would sit beautifully at about 100 kilometres an hour, uh, whether it be on, on pretty much all services. The corrugations were, were no problem at all. Some of the washouts uh, on the corrugations were, were challenging. You, you'd have to slow down and wonder whether to launch over them or sort of bounce into them and bounce out. But no, it, it, it did... It was surprising how well it went. I was really, really pleased with that side of it. Um, yeah, yeah, it did, it did better than I, I could hope. I really like this because, you know, the bike thing, the bike conversation is, is just such a big one for anyone looking <laughs> to do anything. It, it seems like even if they're only going for three weeks, you know, it's how do they prep their bike and how do they get their bike ready? And, and it's almost, uh, it's almost funny to think about, you know, prepping an adventure bike, which already has everything all set up compared to you taking your, your 1951 Harley Panhead on this adventure in Africa, where you're going to get run into all kinds of road conditions, including some really, really tough stuff to ride in by, by anyone's standards. So it, it's an interesting thing to look at, and it sort of makes you think again, you know, about um, uh, what is the right bike and, and how much it really matters. I mean, it's, it's a piece of transportation for you. I, I think it's one of those things which um, I, I was kind of, not naive, but I, I, that's the bike I always wanted to take because I built it. I love it. It's the bike I've wanted since I was a youngster. Um, and I, I really enjoy it. I, I'd spent a long time. I, I wouldn't recommend going and buying something like that and taking it there and then. I mean, I, I, I made some, oh, I had a friend um, make some bash, uh, a bash plate for it, some plate, which ran the length of the bike because I knew at times I'd have to slide it over things. I made some crash bars, which means it's so low on the floor that when it falls over, I mean, it's almost like an airhead um, or a <laughs> boxer engine. that It doesn't go very far. And because it's so low to the floor, I measured it the other day uh, and I've got about, uh, it's about a 24-inch seat height um, when I'm sat inch. on it. Wow. Yeah. So comfortable so, to, to ride, very easy to control when you're standing above the it. The fact that. I'm better off-road on the Harley than I am on my GS. Mm. And again, I'm not a, I'm not an off-road sort of uh, rider by any stretch. You know, there's people who are, who are much better. But I think it's one of those questions which is asked. I, I didn't go out to try and prove anything. I didn't think anyone would be interested in it, one, because it's not a travel bike. So I didn't, I didn't purposely set out to try and be different, try and do anything. It's just that's what I've always ridden. But actually, you know, when you sort of, in this adventure world environment, there's there's a few people. It, I think the marketing can can sort of suck up. You, you can, I think William Field always put it: "Is it paralysis by analysis?" You <laughs> you can you, do, you you you've got to do so much research, and I think especially in today's world, there's so much so much out there on the internet that you can't actually do anything. And you you know you look at you got Ed March on his C90 and Jacques Lucasen on his on his R1 and, and me on my Harley. It, it doesn't really matter. And I will say, Jim, that I I'm so I so love my bike, and I thought the bike would be such a big part of the journey, which it was to a degree. But actually, within about three weeks, the bike was secondary. Um, uh, even with my passion for it, it was a, it was a secondary thing to the journey and the people I met. So. Uh, and, I met some people because of the bike, but it's 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 not the be all and end all. And and you know, I ran as you said, leather panniers. I had a box which I locked. I did have a lock on, but most of my stuff, it, you know, it you can do it on anything. Just take the bike, and and do the journey. It's not don't don't analyze it too much. Just go and do it. Did you have tr <laughs> trouble with overpacking? Because what I see with the the bike from the adventure, it doesn't look like you have all that much stuff. 
I was so annoyed because I I ran for years. I didn't have a rear rack, so when I went abroad, I I used to put a roll bag on the handlebars, um, and whatever fitted in the roll bag is what I could take. And I hate carrying anything on my back, so I'd never carry a, a, a rucksack or anything. Um, so I was used to traveling fairly minimally. Um, I've got older and I like a bit more comfort now, <laughs> and obviously going out for that distance, uh, that length of time, you need a bit more stuff. And I, I am a minimal person. I cut a teaspoon down um, that it fitted in my mug because you don't need anything further than the bottom of the mug. You know, I don't cut the toothbrush down, but, you know, everything is fairly minimal. Hang on um, a second. You cut, the t- you cut the spoon down to save weight? The best throttle lock I've ever tried, hands down, is the Atlas throttle lock. Now, in case you don't know what a throttle lock is, it basically it holds your, it's a device that holds your throttle at a given position. So it's kind of like cruise control in purpose, except that it doesn't increase or decrease the throttle. And uh, because that really has to be built into the bike and usually it's ride by wire, that sort of thing. But in any case, the Atlas throttle lock is designed to give you the freedom that you don't get when you have to keep your hand in that locked position uh, holding the throttle. It is a beautiful piece of engineering. And by the way, it, it's owned and designed by riders just like you and I by uh, with Heidi and David Winters. Now, the Atlas throttle lock is pretty universal, so you don't have to leave it on your bike if you get rid of it. Like I, I know, you know, when you get um, heated grips or something like that, you'll spend a lot of money on them. And unfortunately, a lot of times you let them go with your bike, but you don't have to with this because it's very easy to take off one and go to another. And it's, like I said, pretty universal. It comes with a two-year warranty. It adds another tool for your bike. And and this, I really think, is going to change the way you ride. It operates so smoothly and works so well that it feels like it's OEM, feels like it came with the bike. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. And anytime you're, you're dealing with them, inquiring, whatever, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. It's atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen. That's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops is known for the amazing lighting they make for us motorcyclists, helping us see and be seen. Now, even if you don't ride at night, an auxiliary lighting setup can make you more obvious to others on the road. And you know who I'm talking about here. And that's important considering that most drivers that cut off motorcyclists say they didn't see the bike. Cyclops specializes in all types of lighting for motorcycle, um, including their Evo safety turn signal inserts. I know that's quite a mouthful. Evo safety turn signal inserts. Am I saying that right? I think I am. But in any case, they, they replaced your turn signals with super bright driving lights in the front and super bright brake lights in the back, which also flash back to turning signals as well. But it, it, they're, they're sort of useless. They sit there in a lot of bikes. They don't even illuminate while you ride. This changes all that. And the difference is unbelievable. I've got them on my bike and they command attention because they are super bright LEDs. We've done some episodes where we've had Cyclops um, on the show. We talked about how lighting was made and you sort of get an idea of their quest for quality in what they're doing. And you can certainly see that in the products that they make. They also have uh, CAN bus plug and play systems, LED headlight replacements, all on their website, cyclopsadventuresports.com. Don't forget, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, cyclopsadventuresports.com. Hang on a second. You cut the the spoon down to save weight? 
Not to say, wait, I could get I could get the mug in a particular place, and if the spoon stuck out the top, it okay. wouldn't fit in that particular space. So I, I just I, wanted to I'm get not, my head yeah. around this, Gareth. <laughs> you know, you're riding this Harley 51 pan head, and then you're talking about cutting your spoon down for weight. I was thinking, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, a friend of mine runs a very similar bike, and he's got titanium axles and nuts and bolts all over his, oh, wow. and he's convinced it makes it better. I like mine. Mine rides better with weight on it, because actually it keeps it planted a bit more. So, uh, <laughs> But yes, I... I I, I was a bit annoyed like we all uh, I went off and after about three or four weeks I realised that um, I, I had probably too much stuff um, and I'd forgotten some stuff but luckily um, two months into the trip uh, my girlfriend came out Maria came out to uh, join me for Christmas and uh, so she came armed with inner tubes and a few other bits and pieces and uh, and I sent her home with lots of stuff that I didn't need so, so it, it did get smaller but uh, not forget, no, I think one of my panniers was completely full of um, spare parts and tools. Uh, and the panniers are quite small. The other pannier was camping gear. Uh, and then the box was, uh, I had an iPad and a camera and, um, you know, the stuff I needed to keep safe, spare belts, primary belts. And then the roll bag was just all my sort of, I think the tent went in the roll bag as well, sleeping bag, maybe sleeping bag. So I could just, if ever I got to a, a B&B or a, a lodge, I could just take the, the roll bag and that would have everything, my day-to-day stuff. But uh, even then, I, I, yeah, I was furious. I'd taken way too much stuff. You did 24,000 kilometers. Um, and, and what countries did you go through? So on that trip, it was 10 countries. So that was, I started off in South Africa. I crisscrossed South Africa, uh, ended up over by the Kruger, um, the Mozambique sort of border area, then crossed across the top of South Africa to go to Namibia, through Namibia up to Zambia, in, then down into Botswana, uh, Zambia over to Malawi, up to Tanzania, back through Malawi into Mozambique, the Tet Corridor. Didn't do too much in Mozambique, but I crossed the Tet Corridor into Zimbabwe and then back into South Africa and then Swaziland and Lesotho. And Botswana, that was nine. Yeah, we did Botswana as well. Now, riding around all that time with the, the tools that you and the parts that you brought in your, your pannier, did you break down much? I, I didn't. I had I had um, a problem in the first week, uh, which terrified me. Uh, unfortunately, the gear came off, my drive gear came off my generator, and I was so lucky that it didn't total the engine. I'd already done probably 80,000 miles on that bike, and I've never had a problem with the generator. Two weeks before I left, I swapped the generator because it was 15 years old. And unfortunately, the gear, uh, schoolboy era, the gear was not um, lamped up right or loctited on right, and it came off. Uh, I was very fortunate. I was in Hermanus, uh, just down from Cape Town, and found a guy there who was just amazing and managed to get the parts because I thought I'm going to have to phone up my guy in the UK and get him to ship it over. And uh, we managed to get it going in two days. And other than that, uh, I had a couple of punches, and I broke one primary belt, which is a 20-minute fix. That was right at the end of the journey. And other than that, I had really no problems. The bike was needed some TLC when I got back, and it was rattling a fair bit. Um, the the seat post had broken pretty much, uh, wasn't working. The forks were leaking. But it, a very little problem, very little. Now, why did, why did you have to get parts for the generator when it went? 
the drive gear came off and basically fell through uh, through the, the the cam gears and and luckily wedged itself right down by the oil pump. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it yeah it could have taken half the engine out. Oh yeah. Um, uh, which was and having never had a major breakdown on it before, uh, and I'd only been in South Africa a week, it was like you're kidding me. This this shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, luckily, as I say, very little damage. But I needed a new drive gear. Um, which was sourced in in Hermanus in South Africa. So um, uh, very kindly by a guy called AJ who runs a little workshop in in Hermanus. So uh, he was an amazing guy. He, he was he he trained. In fact, he did it in Canada. He was a Harley mechanic, um, and he went to Canada to train Harley mechanics. Oh. So he knew he knew his stuff. I'm, I I can fix the bike. I'm pretty comfortable with a lot of stuff but I am not a mechanic by trade in any shape or form. So I can wing it. Um, so it was very nice to have a workshop and someone who knew a lot more than I did. You mentioned belt drive as a final drive. It's belt drive. No, it's chain final drive. It's a primary belt. So the engine and gearbox are separate. Um, and, and usually they would have like a triplex or duplex belt, uh, chain running from the engine to the gearbox. Uh, but one of the modifications you can do for old bikes is you can put a primary belt on them they leak a lot of oil on the primaries so if you change it to a belt uh it just it just saves all the oil leaking out um oh, I see. Is, is it encased so, is, like is the primary chain normally have a case around it so you've got a gasket yes. that leaks yeah yeah oh, yeah. oh yeah they they you know i mean it's old old technology so changing sure. it to a primary belt but also it it, it creates a, a sort of weak point which is quite handy because I've got it set up that I can change the primary. If the primary belt snaps, uh, I, uh, from, from it snapping to being back on the road takes me about 20 minutes. Um, so it, it actually, it, it's the sort of weak point that if something gives, it'll be that. And it's so easy to change that it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. So I run a final normal chain, um, but the, the, the belt between the engine and gearbox. So overall, then the bike did very, very well as far as um, mechanically. I, I was really surprised. I was expecting one of the things I, one of the reasons I always said to people, I, I took the bike because I wanted to take it. But when people really ask, I say, well, it, you know, I, traveling solo is. I love traveling solo, um, the riding part, but the nights can be a bit you know dull at times and i had this this cunning plan that i would take an unreliable motorbike so it would give me something to do in the evenings um so unfortunately it did, or fortunately it didn't it didn't actually go wrong that it, much. Com- I mean, it, it, it let you constant- down by not letting you down yeah yeah so i mean you, you you know you need to stay on top of it definitely you, you know there's always checks to do and and whatnot like any bike but um it's all you know very easily managed on that uh so and uh, yeah for, from from not breaking down it made me write a journal which which i'm so glad i did because it's it's nice to be able to um go back to that when you get asked to do interviews and things. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, as the years go by, when you look back, it's incredible. You, you go right back to that day. You can feel the sun on your skin. You know, you, you remember it so vividly. So I, I think journals are fantastic. Oh, I'm so pleased I did it. I'm not best at when you come back from a journey, it's fairly grim and then life moves on and it's sort of easy to forget some of the details. So, uh, I, I'm really pleased I did it. And and who knows if I get my act together and, and now I have a little bit more time, um, it may turn into a book, um, whether it's fit for public consumption, I don't know, but, um, it might come into a book at some stage. 
So your plan of Africa here, southern part of Africa, and of course you said you're, you're sort of blocked off from the rest um, because of Ebola. But the southern part of Africa, what, what are you looking for here? What, what's the adventure about for you? Oh, I think I, I think I think a lot of people look at Africa and, and think of it as a country, and, and you know it's so far from from a country. The the each each country in Africa is a, is a different prospect. It's I mean they're all completely different, but I think what they share uh, all of them is this this energy and and spirit uh, for life and um, just a, just the most amazing. Um, people and, and place to go but so you know South Africa was was fantastic it was very Europeanized in many places um, but the scenery is is and the riding is phenomenal I mean they've got a massive bike scene out in South Africa and, and some of the roads just phenomenal as, as good as anywhere I've been in in Europe uh, by a long way um, and and just a, a good you know it's the outdoor life uh, but and, and obviously the wildlife you get into Namibia, and I've had a fascination with deserts. I love deserts. So Namibia, I mean, Fish River Canyon in Namibia is just astonishing. And some of the desolate desert roads, it's just, you know, it's just you and nothing else apart from dust and, and dirt. It's just fantastic. Um, you know, Botswana, the wildlife in Botswana, uh, Zambia, uh, Vic Falls, you know, one of one of you know the seven wonders of the world. You know, certainly doesn't disappoint. Uh, Zambia, I spent a lot of time, three weeks up in South Luanga Park, which for me was everything Africa ever. I wanted out of an African trip. The wildlife, I mean, you're, you know, meeting sort of large animals. We're used to sheep in Wales, so um, so so yeah, it, it sort of. That side of it was fantastic. The lake in Malawi, Tanzania is just crazy. Lots of Chinese Hondas and and just big groups of ewes who are just fantastic. Waves and smiles everywhere. Um, yeah, each each country is a bad way. Lesotho, Lesotho is it was probably a revelation. I knew nothing about Lesotho, um, and that was just phenomenal. Uh, the 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 first day's ride, I, I came from north and headed into it heading south and and the first day riding there was it was like riding the swiss alps without the motorhomes uh it was just nothing there the tarmac was smooth the just switchbacks and mountains just phenomenal so each country um has its own own charm um and you put them all together and and just yeah just amazing just so much to explore i mean it's such diversity there Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I, I say it was never a dull day, and even the dull days weren't dull. I had a, uh, I was heading up through Namibia, and I, I'd had some punctures going in, a few little problems, and uh, I was heading up from from Fish River Canyon, which is down in the south, up to Vintuk, the the capital, uh, and it was November, middle of November. Or probably late November, maybe early December. Anyway, it's and and the road was arrow straight. And it was just dull. There was no, there was not, it wasn't desert and it wasn't bush. It just looked like wasteland. It was, it was fairly uninspiring. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to let your mind run away and just go, well, this is dull. And then you just step back and go, I've waited probably 40 years to be here. It's November. You know, I've got air in my tyres and I'm on my Harley um, and I'm riding in Namibia. I mean, it's, that, that, that's never a dull day, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, fantastic. I think a lot of times when people think of Africa, you, you mentioned people think of it as a country. When you say South Africa or Southern Africa, those are two different things. 
And um, sometimes people will mistake South Africa for being the southern part of Africa, but South Africa is a country. And uh, Southern Africa, where you went, is what would that be? Would that be half of Africa you covered? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I got as far as southern Tanzania. So, um, I mean, the equator's up in Kenya. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're, you're covering pretty much, you know, oh, oh, yeah, a third to a half of of the whole continent. Uh, I went up as far as the Angolan border. I did illegally cross into Angola for a day, um, uh, but but yeah, followed the Caprivi Strip, and then you know followed that along into Zambia, Lusaka, and then you're heading up the the, the eastern side, so along the lake in Malawi, and then into southern Tanzania. So yeah, it's it's a it's a big scale. I mean, I'm used to Europe where, you know, you, you you know, in two days you can do 10 countries in two days pretty much, two or three days, especially if you're out in Switzerland area. Um, and, you know, in Africa, you know, two days, you're still on the same bloody road. <laughs> so... You mentioned the people. You said that one thing about the Africa that really excites you is that that excitement for life, you were saying. Like, describe that somehow. You know, how do you see that? Well, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's you know, obviously it's a challenging place to live. I mean, you know, in some areas life can be quite cheap, um, for want of a better word. But but I don't know, there just seems to be a, a joy for life and an energy uh, there where, where people are just, I mean, just riding through some of the small villages in particular, you know, again, you can have quite a challenging day. I was riding the Great East Road from Lusaka to Chapata, which is uh, capital of Zambia, over to the Malawian border town. And um, they were building a new road. And this road was hundreds of kilometres of just dirt and red African dirt. And I was in the rainy season as well. And it is just like ice. I, I mean, in fact, luckily I was on the Harley with, you know, um, I can I can put my feet down fairly well. And, it, you know, it's challenging and it is, you know, it's mud everywhere. And, you you know, you, you, you're being quite, it's, it's quite tough. And the Harley is certainly a, a fairly tough bike to ride in many ways. A hundred miles on the Harley is like doing 500 miles on a normal bike. <laughs> um, so you, you kind of, you kind of, you know, challenge and, and you know, it's, it's, it gets a bit gritty at times and then you'll, you'll, you'll come around a corner and there'll be a village, which is, you know, completely caked in mud by the side of the road. Um, uh, and you know, just, it, you know, from a, from a sort of first world point of view, it just looks like hell. Um, and as you ride past, everyone comes out and waves and smiles, and and just the the the, the just the joy of life there. Um, I, I mean, the odd thing as well is is strangely, mobile phones are very prevalent there, so you can pass these little rondavals thatched round huts with you know goats running around and kids, and and you know the kids will come running out and film you going past with their mobile phones. So <laughs> all is sometimes not what it seems. <laughs> But but yeah, there's just a I don't know. There's just a it, 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 wherever I went um, in in all countries, I was welcomed everywhere, and, and that could be from you know uh, high end lodges to you know sleeping in in you know a campsite in the middle of nowhere. Um, I, I was just welcomed. Um, even I got lost in downtown Joburg when people sort of saw my sat nav after and went, you, you really shouldn't be there. Oh, yeah. I, I rode through, and again, a naivety. I, I ride with an open face helmet as well. Um, when you said life was cheap, that's one of the areas where life is cheap. 
Yeah, but I, I think people were just, I mean, maybe I was lucky, I don't know. I, I think people were just sort of bemused by this strange guy on a really odd motorbike with his open face helmet grinning a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, I never ever once, well, I, I didn't have anything stolen. A lot of people go, all oh, crime. I had nothing stolen. Um, I was welcomed everywhere. Uh, you know, I never ever felt threatened. I, I can't think of any moment, a couple of sort of challenging moments uh, with some of the police checks where I was always worried about authority more than public because um, obviously you can kind of, you know, deal with public in whatever way you choose fit, usually right. run away. Um, but obviously with authority, you, you, you kind of can't. So I was always um, I was always wary of some some of the police checks and especially first checks into a into a new country but actually you know, more often than not uh they they were all great i mean half the time i'd sit down and have a cup of tea and a chat and a, and a good old laugh with them they were always interested in the bike um so so yeah re- really did i ever uh feel you know uncomfortable ever so so yeah it's just uh, just yeah the smiles the smiles and the waves of, uh, will stick with me forever what was a wildlife like? <laughs> I was lucky, I think. Um, I got, before I got to Horizons, I was met, uh, I met up with Alex Jackson, who runs Capstad Motorbike Tours, UK-based, but runs tours out of South Africa. And he was doing a presentation at the Horizons event. So I rode up with him uh, to Horizons. And then he invited me to, when he's not taking motorbike tours, he's a, he's a ranger in a, in a game reserve uh, out um, not far from the Kruger and North and Nelspey. And uh, he invited me to join him uh, at his at his game reserve. He'd be working, but I could go out on on trips with him. So, um, just my first uh, encounter, real encounter with wildlife. I was staying in in this uh, little um, out in Africa. You get a lot of small uh, lodges. You can either camp there. You can have you know four by fours part there, uh, but they also have little huts or rondevals. Um, which are just you know, a little bed and breakfast, basically, and and they're dirt cheap. So I was staying. Uh, in fact, I was the only guest in this. In uh, uh, there, Alex had just uh, it was staying in the in the ranger's lodge, and I was about half a kilometre away, and um, the only guest. And I, I was sitting on the stoop of this little hut in the in the dark, uh, having a little glass of wine, just listening to the sounds, which is amazing. In uh, in in sort of southern Africa, uh, out in the bush. And all of a sudden I heard this heavy, heavy, heavy breathing. Um, and I could smell uh, this this animal and I realised it was a rhino. Mm. And he was probably pff, less than 20 feet away from me. And he was walking past my hut, uh, just just wandering down. And that is just something which I, I, I will never, ever forget. There was a storm on at the time. Uh, so there was the odd lightning flash and so I could see his silhouette. And he stood there for quite some time. And I'm, you know, 20 foot away from a rhino. As I say, I'm Welsh, I'm used to sheep. Um, so so seeing, seeing this, you know, very large scale, just magical creature so close. Uh, and I, I couldn't resist in the end. I, I had been told that... Um, uh, rhinos can't climb steps and there was two steps up to my hut so I felt safe um, <laughs> sort of and, uh, but I did put my flashlight on just to see it. and he was looking straight at me um, uh, just yeah a, 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 an, an, a, 
an incredible uh, uh, feeling. Uh, and that was one of many. Um, uh, my my favourite place for the wildlife was South Luanga. Uh, I stayed there for three weeks. Um, there's a photo I'm sure you might well put up, Jim, of I was servicing the bike and uh, I just felt something was looking at me. And I, I sort of looked up. I'm used to fiddling with the bike and just being in my own little world. And I looked up and again, that was probably 20, 30 feet away from me was a, a very large male bull elephant uh, just staring at me. So I, wow. I very carefully backed away because it's different when you're on a safari. And I did quite a few sort of truck safaris while I was out there, uh, Land Cruiser, Land Rover safaris. But it's very different when it's just you and and, and an elephant Um you know they they they're used to people. They they you know they have a lot of tourists going through there. And uh, but uh, you know when it's just you and and that elephant, that's that's a that's a special moment. <laughs> so, yeah. And I I was very lucky. I managed to get the photo. So uh, what's the yeah, size and, difference? And, like what's it like to have this elephant stand there beside you? Yeah, quite scary. Um, I got used to them. They, they, there was a, a troop of three elephants, which would be in the campsite quite regularly. So they'd um, they'd, they'd walk back and file. But this was the first time I'd encountered it. So uh, you kind of got used to it. I was camped. They had like a little thatched um, hut platform, um, sort of a raised platform. So I put my tent on the platform with a thatched roof over it, and then the bike went underneath it. So I would um, I would sit up there, and, and each night. Uh, I'd hear, in fact, the first night I was there, I heard what sounded like something out of Jurassic Park. And there was a, a hippo, which would come pretty much every night, and he'd eat the grass all around the bottom of my platform. What do you mean, sound like a Jurassic Park? What, what, what kind of sound? Well, like, they just they, they just chomp away at the grass, so you just got this sort of... Hum, 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 and you, you can tell it's something a, big. Oh yeah, yeah. You definitely know it's something big, and uh, you know. Again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I like camping. I do a lot of camping, but I'm, I'm, you know, wild camping is is not something I did much of in in South Africa. I've done a fair bit in North Africa, but not in South Africa. But I was the only guest again because it was rainy season. There, there wasn't many tourists around at all, so I was only the guest in this uh, campsite. And I'm quite a long way away from any any people, and and just again having this hippo chomping its way around your tent. Uh, albeit I'm, you know, sort of 12 foot up in the air. Um, yeah, just, just, it's everything you kind of want out of an African adventure. If you, I love, I love the wildlife side of things. So, um, you know, the fact in the park, I, you know, I saw leopard and, and wild dogs in particular, just, uh, that was again, quite rare to see. Um, yeah, just, just baboons every day passing my tent, trying to steal food. I just, yeah, you, 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 it's something you you could never tire of uh, at all. I mean, I've been lucky that I've been out uh, I, in that particular place I spent as long as I could until my visa ran out. And then I managed to go back uh, to a few different places in, in Southern Africa uh, a few times since. So it's somewhere I'll definitely be returning to as soon as I'm able. <laughs> you you also mentioned about the the carne and and how um, by going to Southern Africa you were you were avoiding that. Did you just rock up to the borders and you didn't have a carne? Uh, I, the carne I did have a carne. Um, uh, my bike is fairly unique, so how you put a value on a a bits of a of a motorbike. Um, so uh, I think I don't know if I can say this, but I lied through my teeth <laughs> on the value of it. Uh, so I got it at a, a fairly good price and. 
you have to have it if you ship or fly your bike into South Africa. You, they won't. Oh, you can't do it on a temporary import. But you could. I think you could do. I haven't looked into it a lot, but I am sort of aware of it. Is you could have done a lot of that travel just on on uh, temporary import papers. Um, and in fact, a lot of the borders they didn't know what a carne was. So uh, I mean, quite a few times it, you'd, you'd produce this carne and they, they didn't have a clue. Um, so you just sort of no, no, you have to stamp it. And they they were quite happy. I mean, borders were almost no hassle at all. Um, uh, yeah, no, no real challenges. Once you've done a few, um, the first ones are daunting. But the, the the process is the same on every single border. I mean, the, probably the easier ones are Swaziland and Lesotho. Um, a great one is Malawi into Tanzania because they have a cash machine there, an ATM, and it, what a revelation! Not having to deal with with you know money changes. Although modern technology makes money changing a little easier because you have it at your fingertips of the rates, etc. So you know you're not going to be turned over. But just an ATM on a border, what a perfect situation for yeah. a traveller. <laughs> so that just saves you dealing with them. You, you grab your cash and you've got money to spend in the country, local currency. Yeah, without without having to, and you know, to be fair, most are fine. Most most uh, most of the money changes. I mean, you know, by the nature of borders, there's there's a lot of opportunists at borders, um, and, and the money changes can be. I'm not saying intimidating, but they can be a bit of a pain. Mm. And I think, especially if you're a solo traveller, and you know, my bike is different, and I don't like it. It's not expendable. We'll say I don't. I like to. Be with it at most times. <laughs> I don't want to see you. you know, mean be physically and, and with your bike. Ideally, yeah, yes. Just because I like it, <laughs> and, I don't, and and it's not something I can replace. I mean, that was if ever you know that was sort of the one mistake I made is you know you should you should always be prepared to walk away from something in a situation if it ever got that bad. But I could never walk away from that bike, so it was too. It's too too much of an emotional tie with it maybe um for for, for travel um but yeah so the, the borders can be can be can be a bit of a challenge but it's again you just you just go on i had xe on my phone currency exchange so they come over and try and uh, give you a rate which maybe wasn't too favourable and then you'd show them the rate and you'd come to an agreement. I mean, they've got to make money. And, you know, I think once you you smiling a lot helps and just being friendly and treating people decently at the end of the day, you're a tourist in their country and, and you know, it, you need to be respectful. I mean, sometimes you need to be firm, but also with respect and a smile helps a lot, I think. You mentioned you were, you were a little concerned about the authorities and not so much the you know the average person because you can deal with those in the way you want to deal with them. But what was the what was the fear of the authorities? And then did you run into any of that? I, th- I think it was just how 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 they act with with you. I mean, they're in total control of a situation. There, you you, you know whether they're mm-hmm. gonna. You, you, whether you need to bribe them or, or you know, whether at the end of, I, I had one in particular, almost all were, were brilliant. Um, I, you know, I'd pull up the bike. Certainly they'd always come and look at the bike and I have a, I have a kickstart on it. It's kickstart only. And the kick pedal is like a pedal a cycle, a, right, a pedal like a off a pedal, pedal. bike. Yeah. yeah it, it, which is a traditional old Harley, you know, kick pedal. Mm-hmm. 
and they'd look at that and I, and I would always then they'd, they'd kind of look and they'd always walk around the other side and I'd always say to the to the police oh well usually I pedal it but that one's fallen off so now I have to use the engine and and then they'd laugh and as soon as you've got someone smiling and laughing you you know you haven't got a situation and that worked you know once you get the, the little key key words or key actions you know you know you can you, you know you, you're in a, a safe place but there was a, a crossed into Zimbabwe and a lot of people had said don't go to Zim you know it, it's it's I mean Mugabe was still there then you know the, the, again it, there's some challenging places um, and I was heading off to the Eastern Highlands and it was one of the few police checks I got pulled over by a, a sergeant and two juniors and almost all police checks in in Africa or, or Southern Africa and, and West Northwest Africa as well are, are leading into villages or towns. So there's usually quite a few people around, so you don't feel too intimidated. Um, I got stopped by these uh, three coppers uh, in the middle of nowhere, and there was no one about it. When I hadn't passed the town for an hour, um, very few cars, and I just thought I am at their mercy. I mean, they they could do anything. You know, I'm a you know, even though the bike looked sort of old and I looked sort of, you know, by then I'd been on the road for quite a few months, so I'm sort of looking the same colour as the dirt pretty much and the bike's <laughs> looking the same. So I'm not I'm not a spaceship as such, which some, you know, if you're on a brand new GS1200 with all the new gear on and corporate stickers over it, you know, I, I blended in a little bit, maybe maybe not blended in, but I, I certainly didn't look like a, a rich tourist. Um uh, you know, you're still rich to them. And I thought they could do anything here. And I did get, I'd heard some reports of Zimbabwe being, you know, obviously a bit lawless. Um, and and uh, the, the the sergeant was quite demanding and quite abrupt at first. And I thought, this could be, this could develop into something uh, not good. I handed over my uh, license. They always wanted to see license. They hardly ever wanted passport. And I think on police checks, I think I only showed my carnet once or twice. And I don't think I ever showed insurance. Are you showing your UK license? Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, but this guy wanted everything. He wanted my license. He wanted my carnet, insurance, my logbook, and uh so he and he was quite abrupt, and I thought I'm I'm in for trouble here. And as soon as he read my license, and he's looking at the bike, and then he started calling me Mister Jones, and then we started having a bit of a laugh, and I ended up making a a, a, a cuppa with him and and his uh, his boys, and and we just had a great half an hour of just chatting about Zimbabwe, and he said, "How are you finding Zimbabwe?" And I said, "The you know the people are amazing, the scenery is fantastic," and he said, "There is no crime in Zimbabwe," and I thought, "Well, maybe not by the people, but I think it's the politicians you need to look out for." <laughs> but I thought I'll, I'll, I'll you know, Break never, never talk politics. Yeah. Politics or religion, stay firmly away from. Um, so, so, but they were fantastic. And he said, "Oh, could you give me a lift? Could you give me a lift home uh, when I finished my shift?" And I said, "Well, I, I only have one seat on the bike, so I can't." Which he thought was hysterical. He said, "Well, when you come back, give me a lift when you come back, and I'll sit on the back on the on the you know the roll bag." But uh, and and they were great. And and so you just go, you know, at the end of the day, they're just doing a job. And to be honest, if they're a copper in the middle of nowhere, you know, they they don't see anyone all day. Um, so I always had the thing of they don't see anyone all day. They've got two options with you. They can either have 
fun with you or they can make your life fairly miserable. So I always work on the fun side. Um, you know, don't, you know, you might be checked 20 or 30 times a day. There's no point getting angry. It's part of the adventure and it's, you know, it, it's different to home and that's what we're there for. Um, but actually they're just doing a job and it, as long as they're friendly and I, I, I really got asked for gifts or bribes. And if I did, it was, it was, I never gave any, um, so and that was you know just give them time and 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 sort of a chat and it, it always worked always worked for me. Why do you think they come at you like with, with the hard line sort of thing? Do they find you like a threat or do they they maybe they're jealous because they can see that you obviously have money you're traveling you've got a motorcycle I mean what do you think the the reason is behind it? I, I, I maybe some of those I think um, I think. They probably thought I was South African, and I, 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 I wouldn't want to say a bad word about South Africans. I have many, many South African friends, and they are the most welcoming and hospitable people I've ever, ever met. So I don't want to – but when you first meet them, they can be – they take a little getting used to. They can be quite loud, and I know I'm quite loud, but uh, they can be quite loud and, and abrupt, and they certainly tell it like it is. Um, and obviously the police there are used to much more South Africans travelling through and the South Africans aren't, don't take kindly to being stopped by the police all the time because they have it in their own country and they just get fed up with it and, and, and probably rightly so to a point. I, I'm not. I rarely get stopped by the police. Um, uh, so so it was all part of the journey for me. So I think once they realised I wasn't an abrupt South African. I, say, I mean that in the nicest possible term. I would hate hate for anyone in South Africa listening to this thinking, oh, you know, he didn't get us. I, I, I live in South Africa happily. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't know whether they've had hassle with bikes before, um, you know, but I, I certainly didn't have trouble. But the initial, initial uh, abruptness was was there a few times. I'd say probably... Uh, Twice, and the only other time I had any real hassle with the police was uh, I got stopped coming back into South Africa from Zimbabwe at the end of my journey, and um, I got pulled over. and And again, it was a it was a captain or or you know higher ranking officer and two juniors, and he clearly was showing off to his juniors. Um, and out in South Africa, I was probably one of the slower things on the road. It, everywhere else, every other country I went to, I was probably the fastest thing on the road. So <laughs> he certainly wasn't booking me for speeding or pulling me for speeding. It was just the regular check. Um, and he wanted everything. And he just wanted, you could see, it was just trouble uh, written all over him. But he was certainly showing off. But he wanted my logbook. And I would really been asked for the logbook, as I said. You mentioned the logbook a minute ago. Somebody else asked for it. What is a logbook? It's a registration document. Oh, I see. That so your uh, your how what do you call them in the states? I know you're Canada, but pink slips or so it's your proof of ownership. Mm, I see. And uh, but I come from Wales, and uh, uh, everything we have from the government is um, bilingual. So I gave him my logbook registration document, and unfortunately, he opened it up, and and it's the the Welsh side. So I know that. He's reading the Welsh. He hasn't got a clue what any of it says. I mean, people, you know, in the UK wouldn't have any idea what the Welsh side says pretty much. So a South African probably never, uh, other than the rugby, because they're big rugby fans out there, uh, he wouldn't have heard of Wales or Welsh language. Um, 
So I know he's reading that. He probably knows that I know he's reading it, but he can't lose face in front of his junior. So he kept reading it for quite some time. Um, and in the end, uh, he literally scrumpled it up into a ball and threw it at me and just told me to go. Um, so, oh, wow. uh, yeah, which was, you just kind of go, that's kind of not necessary. It was just, but, you know, still no no bribe, no fine, no no nothing. It was just an uncomfortable moment. But, you know, in 24,000 kilometres, six months, you know, you count on, uh, that, that was, you know, three three times I think it was I had any kind of hassle where you go really do I really have to go through this the rest of the time was just a pleasure what do you do what's your approach when you deal with that do you you sort of push back or do you become very humble or how is it I I I'm I'm a very passive kind of a person anyway I'm not uh, there's no um you know I'm not an aggressive by nature uh I'm definitely more of the smiley type of person so uh so and as I say I wear an open face helmet so people people see me straight away and they'll see I'll pull up and I'll always grin. I'll always get off and shake a hand and, and ask them how they are. How are they? You know, I don't, they don't need to know how I am. I want to know how they are. So, uh, so actually just chatting to them and, and just, just chatting to them like you would a mate. Um, and, and that was and not, and trying not to be intimidated. So, you know, sometimes you just got to sit there and let them go through their process and, and, yeah, I mean, I, I, it never got any further than an uncomfortable moment. So how I'd react to that, I'm not so sure, but I never got into that situation. And, and whether that was luck or just, uh, you know, my, my manner, I, I don't know. But, you know, I can only speak on my own own experiences. And, and so, yeah, I, I smile, smile and just treat people like you want to be treated. Uh, and I think respectful, in particular respectful, because you know, I am traveling through, through, through their country. And, and, you know, you, you, you have to accept sometimes, even though there was no bribes, there was, you know, with the money changes, as I said earlier, sometimes you've you got to say it's part that, you know, it's part of being a tourist here. It's a cheap place to go and visit in some ways, expensive in others, but on the whole, it's, it's a lot cheaper than Europe. So, you know, sometimes you just got to sort of, Except that you've got to, you know, if you need to pay for something and, and you feel that you've may, maybe not got the best rate for whatever you're paying for, uh, they've taken a, you know, as long as it wasn't uh, unreasonable, um, it was not something I, I really had a big issue with. As long as it was, you know, a, a dollar here or there was going to make their life a lot better and not impede on my life. Mm. too much <laughs> well you, you're traveling along by yourself now is there some fear in that or do you already have maybe a, uh have you already built up somehow with, with other travel you know an acceptance for that or an understanding or a way to deal with it for yourself or or did you find there's times where you're apprehensive you're traveling alone and you're having to deal with this stuff on your own um yeah that was quite strange because i thought I'd, i would be I'm quite a sociable person and I certainly like chatting to people and I thought I might be quite challenged with solo travel. I'd done a few trips on my own out in Europe um, just to make sure I could travel on my own. And most of my earlier travel with, with, with some, you know, great friends who, uh, you know, we traveled all over Europe together for, for different events, whether it be Harley events or music events or whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, traveling alone was, was one of the big things I was quite concerned about. I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. Um, just the, the, I didn't, I didn't have to, if I wanted to stay somewhere, I said I stayed in South Loanga for three weeks. If I was with someone else, they probably would have said three days is enough, maybe if they weren't into the wildlife. So just having the, 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 the complete and utter, uh, 
the freedom side of it for me was immense. I, I run my own business for a long time. That was had its own challenges um, of just life sort of felt, you know, sometimes a bit trapped trapped in 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 many ways not just with work but you know mortgage and just the normal life and so the freedom to be on on my own and just making my own decisions and also that challenge of can I do it can I make my own decisions what happens when things go wrong can mm-hmm. I deal with it I'd read everyone's books you know and and you know watched long way round and long way down obviously and and you know how am I going to deal with that and actually uh, yeah it, it 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 was brilliant I mean Sometimes you get your down days and, and you know, I, I was never fearful ever. I can't think of any time I was fearful, but it, certainly the down days and, and the bike, you know, I know the bike well. The bike talks to you a bit and, and if it started rattling, you, you just, your head starts whirring of what if, what if, what if all the time. Mm. And I realised in the end is, you know, whatever happens, happens and you, and I'll do whatever I can to make it happen but sometimes it's beyond your control. Don't worry about the stuff which is beyond your control. Worry about the stuff which you can control. Um, and then I found that I, I, beforehand I'd really listen to music on while I was riding because I like to listen to, to the sound of the bike and, you know, hear if there's anything wrong. But oh, there, you rarely times, listen. Sorry, I thought you said you, you really listen. To, you rarely listen to music while you ride. Rarely listen. Right, so it wasn't something I'd, I'd done often, but I mean, Sometimes you know there's some very big long roads with very little traffic on it, etc. So I'd, I'd I'd put the I had a um, a Bluetooth set on my on my in my um, helmet and uh, just put music on every now and again. You just put some music on if your head was whirring and you were just getting you know sort of a bit fought. I just used to put the music on and listen to that for a while. And, and and that would usually take me out of that moment and it'd certainly stop the bike rattling. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was quite an easy fix, to be fair. So, so yeah, that helped a lot. And then and um, you were saying about the uh, sort of the people side, I, I, I really liked, enjoyed meeting people. Uh, and I think it, one of the things which stuck out is when Maria came to join me in over Christmas at, uh, at in Livingston, uh, Maria is super social. I mean, she's sort of come into this by default by we we met talking about africa so we've been together about 10 years and um we met talking about me going and doing this africa trip and if if it wasn't for maria my trip she sort of backed me all the way and when some stuff got pretty challenging financially she she helped me out uh and said you're not coming home i don't know if she just didn't want me home or (laughs) but um uh but she came out to join me and and for those who have met her out in the horizons and and overland event and stuff everyone who knows maria uh knows how you know super friendly she is and i was staying in a lodge in livingston a little campsite stroke lodge safari tent place uh, just outside Livingston and they were fabulous fabulous couple who ran it and he'd left I because I, I've only got one seat on the bike I rented a little four by four uh, pickup truck and left the bike with him while we went off with Maria uh, to do that and then um, so he, he became a good friend and the day Maria left he came over and said you've got to come and join me for come and join my family for dinner and I thought I know why he's doing it is because he thinks I'm lonely because Maria's gone yeah. home. And I know she won't mind me saying it was brilliant while she was here. It was like a proper holiday, but she'd stalked me enough and it was time for me to get back on the bike and carry on riding. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
So, but she would have absolutely loved that. And I thought, why didn't you ask me when Maria was here? But then you realise when you're travelling solo that people kind of go, oh, he's on his own. He needs some company, which I was always happy to have. So, so yeah, I met some amazing people um, because I was solo. But it was odd that when Maria was with me, who was even more social than I was, that people left us alone. So that illustrates a, an interesting point, doesn't it? I mean, you do hear that a lot. I, you know, a lot of people say, and of course, the the two camps to to which is better or which some people like. And I think it, I think it comes down to personality. That's what, what runs through my mind with it. But, um, that's interesting because that, that illustrates the point right there. You know, you, you get an invite and it only makes sense. You know, you see somebody by themselves, they're generally more open to talking with people than they are with a group. They tend to joke amongst themselves. Yeah. 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 I think it was, um, you know, I, 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 to be honest, the nature of my journey was almost dictated by the people I, met because I was on my own. So that, that particular evening I was with, with, um, Brad, uh, who ran, the, uh, and his family who ran this, uh, Marumba River Lodge, uh, in, in Livingston. And he put some dots on my map and said, Hey, you need to go to these places. This would be great. Um, Cobus who runs Horizons Unlimited in South Africa. Uh, he, he, gave me loads of information. He'd traveled Southern Africa like I'd traveled Europe. So he knew a lot and said, look, you know, these are some great places. So I'd just sort of link some of these up and then you'd meet someone um, on the road. I met a Russian uh, guy who lived in Swakamund in Namibia who was hitchhiking home. And uh, I'd pulled into a petrol station. I couldn't give him a lift because I was uh, on on one seat. And we got chatting for half an hour and and he said, oh, you've got to go and visit Basel. I said, who's Basil? He said, oh, he's a bushman and he lives in the desert in Ois in the middle of Namibia. Um, and, and he likes old motorbikes. You've got to go and visit him. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't met this hitchhiker on the side of the road in a petrol station, uh, I wouldn't have met Basil, who was an absolute character and, a, and a, 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 you know another great place to stay. So uh, because I didn't have a plan, I could kind of go, oh, OK, yeah, I'll go there. So meeting people made my journey. So when I was at Basil's place, which was Brandenburg Rest Camp um, in Uys, uh I met someone there who said, oh, i got a friend who runs a, a lodge up in Rundu, which is at the end of the Caprivi Strip. You've got to go and visit him. And so, yeah, I was just kind of handed around Africa, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. You you really had a time limit and, and then sort of a rough idea of where you wanted to go, but the rest is open. Yeah, I, and I always got. I, so I never ever got to Zanzibar. Unfortunately, I got I got within about four days of it, but I knew it was going to be very expensive to get there. It's quite a, a nasty road to get there, and then I'd have to come back along that. It's a truck route, it's a, a Transam Highway. Um, so, and I just thought it's you know I'll save that for another day. It gives me the excuse to come back. But I always said if I don't get somewhere, it's because I'm having fun somewhere else. And I know that's a cheesy cliche thing to say, <laughs> but I really was. <laughs> Well, Zanzibar, so, yeah. what's the, what's the, tra- I mean, I, I've heard of it too, since I was, actually, isn't Freddie Mercury from Zanzibar? He is indeed. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, what's the draw though for you? What do you think's there? I, it's just a great sounding place. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've, 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 I've looked at it since. I mean, um, a friend of mine uh, went there and did a, a Dylan Wigram. I don't know if you've interviewed Dylan. Yeah, some um, back. Yeah, so Dylan went there and sent a load of photos back. And, I'm, you know, I really, really still want to go there. But I, I think it was just one of those places that you hear when you're a, a, a small boy of, I mean, a bit like Timbuktu. Uh, right. I never managed to get there either. But um, <laughs> uh, Timbuktu or Zanzibar just sounds so exotic. And 
yeah, why not go to Zanzibar? <laughs> sure. It's probably more the reason. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's, I think in an ideal world, uh, I, I, I mean, from the fruit adventure as well, I saw a lot more, uh, but I still would love to go to Uganda, Rwanda. I didn't get to Ethiopia. Um, uh, so, so uh, Sudan. So there's still, still, you know, you could spend a lifetime traveling around Africa and still only see a smidgen of it. Well, is there any? Is there any thought to putting the back seat on so that Maria can go with you, or does Maria ride? <laughs> well, she's she she is learning to ride, um, and and we have a plan. So when I came back from from the last trip, I decided there was a, a better way of living, um, and uh, so I kind of sold up and my house and I've uh, I've sold the house retired from work I now live at Maria's house and we bought ourselves a Unimog camper nice so um so the idea was is we were going to spend sort of the next year on the road uh, probably Africa certainly Morocco and where where it took us from there I don't know it depends on costs and how we get on with it um so and then it was we'd go we'd go on a bike somewhere else as and when that permitted um so she was going to take a test and uh, she loves driving. She's a bit of a petrol head, so she'd love to ride a bike. But unfortunately, you know, sort of COVID and stuff has scuppered a little bit of that at the moment. But I said, I, I don't mind whether we do it two bikes, you know, wherever or, you know, two up on one bike. Uh, I've got the GS, which is, you know, kind of ready to go and needed. Um, so, yeah, tra- travel, unfortunately, you know, that's the only problem with doing these big, long trips is they they change your life. I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you read a few books from, you know, the likes of Sam and, and Graham and, you know, the usual culprits and, you know, then then you kind of go, oh, I'll have a go at that. And then you realise it's the life you want to live and you, you know, sell every day. I used to have nice holidays, you know, a couple of weeks a year and go skiing in the winter and a nice house. And now I'm basically homeless. <laughs> and, um, and your friends are scratching their heads saying, what happened to Gareth? He's yeah, losing yeah. his mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I can't have a midlife crisis because I've done the motorbikes and I've done the sports cars. So right. I think just selling everything up. And, and I think uh, going back to what I said earlier is just the freedom of the road. Just I realised... It's just a it's just a world I, I really, really enjoy. It's not for everyone. I mean some of it's challenging, but I, I just really enjoy it. Um and how long we go for and what plan, I don't really know. I mean I think some of now will depend on how the world evolves from where we are now. Um but but yeah, it's um so but, but yes, Maria would love to ride. We'll see we'll we'll see where how that goes. <laughs> Has the 51 Panhead seen its last adventure? I mean, because you did mention in there, and, and I gather it's something maybe you didn't put too much thought into ahead of time, that this is your prized possession. This is a bike that you are so connected with, and you do not want a chance losing it. Is, is, does that sort of take it off the table for the next adventure? Um, no, because um, I'm pretty stupid. <laughs> um, so, I, no, it, I'm going to take it. I, whether it goes back to Africa or anything that extreme again, it may or may not. Uh, part of it will be down to cost because, that, again, one of the things with it is, it, you know, you you wear it out on a journey like that as you do with any bike, and it's quite an expensive bike to keep in in condition, able to do big miles on an overland trip. Like the parts are expensive um, on that bike, I guess. Yeah, I mean, just rebuild. I mean, I've, I've, I've been rebuilding, uh, like everyone, when you come home from a big trip, you're skint <laughs> with nobody <laughs> left. So it took a while to, to, although the bike was still running 
sort pretty well. It was rattly and it needed some 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 work. So um, bit by bit over the last few years since I've been back, and certainly when I sold the house, I had some some money to be able to put back into the bike. So it's just it's just sort of returning it back to peak condition. So I'm I'm hoping to get out to the Pyrenees for a couple of weeks on it this year, if if everything opens up okay. Um, I'd love to take it back to Morocco. Um, that's one of my favourite places to ride. Um, so, so, and yeah, who knows? Maybe a big trip around Europe could be a possibility just because it's a, it, you know, obviously I can, it's not quite as challenging for it. Uh, it's not as risky. I, right? I mean, not as, not as big of a chance of losing it through something. I, yeah, I think well, that- on, on saying that, I, I'm probably more likely more likely to have it stolen in Europe than oh, I am in Africa yeah, because true. no one knew what the hell it was I in Africa. I never so, thought about that. you know, I am very careful with it as well. Um, but it, yeah, so it's just, um, so yeah, I'd love to do more on it. And I, and I'm kind of torn between, you know, I, I've got to go and do something on the pan. It's not a bike for two up. I have taken a, a, a previous partner on the back of it, um, to, to, uh, on a big European trip. And because it's got no suspension and obviously the back seat doesn't have a spring, it, it's a hard bike for a passenger. I mean, it's hard enough as a rider, but hard that was the end of that relationship. Well, no, it, it wasn't, but yes, it's, uh, <laughs> she went and did her own test after and bought her own bike or, or got a bike, but, um, I don't need this. um but yeah, it, it's it. And so yeah, it, it's not really. Um, and also, you know, by the nature of of how it is, it's you know, if it breaks down, and I have broken down in many European countries with friends, it's quite challenging trying to keep your friends happy while you're broken down again. Mm. So, uh, um, so so yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a better solo bike, I think. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I'd love to do something else on it. I mean, say Eastern Europe, maybe. Um, I mean, the Americas, if ever I write the book, I'd, I'd really like to take it to America, mainly because maybe I could sell a few more books there. That, you know, hopefully the Harley fraternity would come on board on it. So it might, be, it, might, it might go and do a stage trip at some stage. Who knows? So if your style of riding is, is maybe a lot of paved roads with the odd dirt road thrown in, maybe some rough stuff out every now and then, you probably want comfort first. But when you do hit the dirt, you still want that added extra leverage that only a, a well-designed foot peg will give you to help control your bike. Now, the ADV-1 and the ADV-2 foot pegs are large platform foot pegs made by IMS products. Now, IMS has been making parts since 1976. That's when they started. And ever since then, they've been owned and run by off-road racers and enthusiasts. And and part of the the massive success of IMS is that they rely on their employees' experience of riding, building, and racing dirt bikes, ATVs, all kinds of vehicles to develop the products that they make. So when they set out to design their, their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, including these ADV-1s and ADV-2s that a massive knowledge base to draw from, and then subsequent testing as well, all in-house, which explains why, why their products are so good. It was such high quality. Now, the ADV-1 and ADV-2 are an extra large platform that will give you incredible leverage in the dirt when you need it to maneuver the heavy adventure bike, but really, really comfortable on the highway. Have a look at what they've got. It's imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com.
the off-road sections that you wrote, you, you wrote it in a, in a fair bit, we talked about a little bit earlier, though. But in Lesotho, I think that, that was your sort of your tough spot. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, Lesotho was five months into the trip. So I'd been on the road for, for quite some time. And, and as I said earlier, the first day in Lesotho, I came in from, uh, I can't remember the name of the town, Barberton, I think. Um, anyway, drop drop down into Lesotho, and the f- the first day in there was just phenomenal. Smooth tar, alpine roads, um, very little traffic, um, fantastic, beautiful scenery. And I thought Lesotho is my new favourite country. Just incredible riding. Uh, spent the night in the middle in a place called Katsi Dam, and uh, left Katsi the following morning, heading heading south towards South Africa. And I think I did about six kilometres on tar. Uh, on those six kilometres on tar, I hit a massive speed bump, which was covered in dust at about 80 kilometres an hour. Oh. And it was the I was airborne. The, the, I was off the bike, hanging onto the handlebars. The seat hit me in, in sort of pretty much where my shoulders are. Um, oh. uh, how we hung onto it and how nothing broke, I have no idea. So that was the start of the day. I was a few kilometres into the ride. And, and then the tar finished. And it was it was it just got worse and worse. It was uh, it was a dirt track, sort of you know you could get a four by four down there or whatever, but um, it just got harder and harder. And it was it was. What, what do you mean? Um, Describe the dirt. Well, it was it was a lot of rocks, lot of gravel, very hilly, uh, so boulders, quite large, uh, sort of um, you know I don't know two foot two foot diameter boulders, which are bouncing off. And uh, so I was smashing the bike to pieces, um, came off a couple of times. And and so I'd hit a boulder, you'd bounce from one to the other, or I say a boulder, a rock. I mean, if you're a Dakar rider, you just laugh because you'd just be going over it at probably 140 mile an hour. But, but you're riding pan, a 51 panhead. Yeah, with no suspension and about four, inch of, with four inches of ground clearance. So um, I'd bounce from rock to rock and occasionally you'd just throw you off and then the bike would land on its side. So you can't just pick it up because then I can't, I can't get a good swing on the kickstart because it'll hit the rock of just hit, come off. So then you've got to drag the bike over um, to make to get it up with enough room to kickstart the bike. And I think I did all day. I don't think I got out of first or second gear most of the day. Um, I just, it was just, there was lots of water gullies, which I'd have to sort of bounce my way through. The hills, going uphill was quite good because the bike is really, really tractable. It's got real punch to it and, and it'll go you know, slow enough. I put quite low gearing on it for Africa, change the sprockets. Um, so it would just chug up the hills okay. Um, but going down was challenging because you're very loose gravel. You've got rocks and, and boulders and water gullies and you can't pull a front brake on because you're going to wash out. But my back brake, uh, if ever you look at photos of the pan, the back brake lever, I've got footboards on it and the back brake lever, you've got to take your foot off the footboard and put your knee almost up to your chin to push the back brake so you do the, the basically the pan ed dance so to control <laughs> it going downhill you've, you've got one foot on the board one foot on the brake which is up by your chin you know you're, you're, you're fighting the bike not a stable position to be in it's not elegant um yeah i'm not going to win any prizes but it would just smash its way through i'm i'm the fork seals broke uh unfortunately my seat post uh sort of 
buggered up. The seat post was actually off a, a presidential Egyptian um, uh, convoy bike. The, 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 you know, the bikes that follow the president, um, which I bought from a friend of mine, and it was full of Sahara when I stripped it. So it was all the original part, and it <laughs> ran really, really smoothly. But unfortunately, Lesotho killed it, so it, it lost its sort of two or three inches of nice gliding uh, spring to sort of a, an inch of it felt like a bit of wood. Um, uh, so, it, yeah, it didn't glide anymore. Mm. Um, the bash plate was smashed to pieces, Um but it, it it did it. It took me a good few hours, but the the end result being, uh, I ended up at the highest pub in Africa, and it's a bit of an iconic overlanders uh, spot. Uh, it's the I mean I don't know if you know of um, sort of the Nurburgring or Stelvio Pass in the in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, a, a major places where you go uh, biking. Well, at top of Sani Pass is where the pub is and it's called Sandy Top and it's it's an iconic place for uh, adventure riders to go and dirt bike riders to go in South Africa. Uh, I think Top Gear used it as well on one of their features um, and it's a real big challenge. So, yeah, I rock up there on this Harley sort of leaking oil and I'm battered and I must admit I was aching um you know i was in i was in i'd been it was a fairly fairly challenging day we'll say and i must admit i got there and i thought well i th- i think i've probably earned my adventure wings today <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, yeah but i got there and people were just absolutely bemused the fact that it's like you know the first question is how did you get here <laughs> and for the people who, who know that place i didn't come up sandy pass i came across from catsy dam and i just went what you can't come from there you know where's your backup and i'd say well google <laughs> that's my backup um so yeah there's a lot of dirt bike riders up there who were just completely overwhelmed with the fact uh, I, I i bumped into a tour guide who took xt you know, two fifties up there, and he said, "I've been coming here thirty years, and I think I've never, I've never seen a Harley up there, let alone an old one. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I, I don't know. I know Harleys have been up there since, um, but um, you ruined uh, it. You, you just ruined it for them. I, I always remember this story that I that I read many years ago. It was to do with four wheeling and how they used to have these, this group of people had this hill, this massive hill mountain or whatever they were climbing up. They did it every year as a sort of a ritualistic thing until the one year they got up there and found that somebody had driven a vote Volkswagen bus up there <laughs> that disbanded yes. it, right? So that's sort of what you've done there. This has been a tough ride for people on their lightweight dirt bikes, and you show up on this panhead, <laughs> totally oh, unsuited. It, it was so funny. I mean, I, I had a great reaction from people. I've got a photo of me when I eventually left there. I spent a couple of days there just to recover and put the bike back straight and whatnot. And I, I've got a photo of me going down Sandy Pass. And as I say, going down for me was a lot harder than going up. Um, and, I, and I thought going down Sandy Pass was a doddle to what I'd done the couple of days before. Um, and I, I was coming down and, and on the way up was uh, three guys, two on 1200 GSs, you know, with TKC 80s on and, and built, you know, built for it. And I got on a 690 KTM. Uh, not 690, what was your one before that? 640, one at the LC4, uh, 640 Adventure, which are massive. They're so tall. And I've got a photo of the Harley part next to the 640. And I, I don't care. I mean, it's, it's lower than his, than, than his back wheel almost, you know, it just, uh, and, and they just went, I can't, I, I, we, 
we thought we were seeing things. As you're coming down, we're coming up thinking we're being all adventurous. And there's this idiot coming down with his wide handlebars and his open-faced helmet, his leather panniers, just sort of bumbling about Africa like, a, like an idiot. But, um, but yeah, so that was, that, was, that was a good challenge. And, and you know, it, it's certainly, certainly a great place to go because it's a great bar at the top and, and a great restaurant and they've got accommodation there and you can camp there. Um, and I think, I believe, you could, they have, like, loads of... Um, uh, graffiti in the pub and lots of uh, drawings and, and stickers and photos of people. And when I was up there, um, there was a, a family on holiday up there who came up from Durban and their boy drew a picture of my bike. And um, and so I, I sort of, he did a really, really good job because I can't draw at all. And uh, I believe I've got friends who go there quite often who, who get back in touch and said, your picture's still up, your drawing is still up <laughs> in, in Sarny Pass. So, um, so yeah, I'm quite proud of that one. It's, I, 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 I think that was one of the, the moments you go, yeah, okay, I, I've earned this one. So, yeah. You mentioned the other riders with the TKC 80s. What were you running on yours? And, and you, <laughs> you must have had to replace these tires, didn't you? Or did they last that, that full time? No, they didn't. The, the, I, I was running... Um, they used to call them Avon Death Masters, but they, they're actually called <laughs> that's, Speed Masters. That's because that's not the official name, though. <laughs> no, no, Speed Masters or SM SM twos actually, and and they were great. Um, uh, one of the things I did when I built the bike is uh, I, I purposely set it up for overland. So the front and back wheels are the same. So I've got the same tires front and back, same inner tubes. I even run. I, I one of the things I did was uh, the one of the visible things I did was I converted it to disc brakes front and back. So I also have the same discs and calipers front and back. So I only need one caliper repair kit, you know, disc is the same. So, you know, you're cutting down on, on parts and and, uh, so, so, you know, it was, it was all built for it. So, but these, these speed masters, I got, I don't know, I got about 3000 miles and then I swapped tires front to back. So put the back one on on the front and the front oh, the back. That's great. Um, so you get double the mileage yeah. out of them because obviously the front lasts a lot longer. These, these aren't aggressive um, tires anyway. By, by the way, they're 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 sort no, of they're a, vintage vintage yeah, road tires. Exactly. And, and when I say road tires, most people wouldn't use them on the road either because they <laughs> they were known to be made of bakelite years ago, and uh, you know they'd square off. No traction. And they were, yeah, they were bloody awful. The new, the new ones are, are, are pretty good. I love them. I mean, I've, I've chased the locals on supermotos up, up and down Stelvio in um, in Europe and up and down the Alps and Col de Turini and all the big sort of alpine climbs, and they, they work a treat. Um, but they don't last as long as the old ones because obviously they're, they're a little bit softer. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I did ship out tyres because I, I had a feeling I probably wouldn't be able to get them. So I shipped tyres out with the bike or flew the tyres out in the box uh, with the bike and then left them in Cape Town. And then uh, I actually changed them halfway around the journey, which was in South Luanga, where all the wildlife was in Zambia. So I swapped them uh, swapped them over in, in South Luanga. So I'd like to think whenever they leave tyres in, in Zambia or a lot of the countries in Africa, um, uh, they make them into flip-flops, sandals. Right. Yeah. So they. So I, I'd really like to think that there's someone in Zambia walking around with a set of Avon yeah. Speedmaster flip-flops on somewhere. Getting even more great. miles from them. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. No, I shipped. The, I, I, I 
got the the tires then chipped up to Zambia, and it cost loads because I had to pay import duty, and it was quite a challenging thing to do. And I think one of the things, if I was to do that kind of adventure again on that kind of on that bike, I'd probably convert it to eighteen inch wheels, so I could get tubes and tires pretty much anywhere, mm. and, and put a bit more aggressive um, tires on it. That's going to change uh, your ride completely on that, though. This takes yeah, a lot of your suspension of- out. Yes. Yeah. But I have just found a company. There's a company in Germany who uh, make tires for old Harleys. I've got a, um, uh, and in fact, I think it's Heider now, make them for them. And they, they've, they did make an aggressive, uh, 16 inch tire. I think, um, Doug Walski was using it on, on who's around the world, Doug, who's done many, many journeys on old Harleys mm-hmm. around the world and, and across the stands and Tunisia and stuff. And he was one of my big influences, uh, of, of if he can do it, I can do it as well. But, um, I've never met him. We did chat a little bit on Facebook at one stage. Um, but, uh, he was trying them, but I've just seen that they've just released a high aspect vintage style tire with a road uh, with a more dirt inspired tread on it so that might be worth having a go at one of those so yeah well you know technology's finally catching up with me <laughs> catching up with the harley <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> hey just to, to wrap things up you mentioned cost i'm sort of curious about that because um you know i'm thinking about the expense and i think south africa is <laughs> probably more expensive than, than other countries but, but do you know overall roughly or, or do you want to talk about it or how much it costs you for the trip uh, to be honest, I never added it up. It, yeah. it cost what it cost. And it was sort of, um, I'm not saying it was cost no object, um, because it was, because I kind of, uh, for, for lots of different reasons, it, it, it different things happened, which which um, uh, c- caused some grief on the financial side. And I say Maria sort of back, backed me up and said, no, keep going. Um, Cost-wise, um, I was trying to work it out. I, I, overall cost, I can't, I, I, I have absolutely no idea. No, but, but maybe even just like, was it expensive? You, was traveling expensive? I mean, was it, you know, was it fuel? Traveling itself, South Africa was cheap, cheap, cheap. Oh, I mean, cheap. At the time, yeah, really cheap South Africa. At the time, um, uh, the Rand was quite, uh, the, the pound against the Rand was strong. I'm not sure what it is now. Um, the places where you thought it would be expensive was really cheap. So South Africa in particular. I mean, you know, I was getting bed and breakfast in, you know, some quite nice nice lodges for, uh, you know, 10 to $12. Oh, um, wow. So, you know, it was as cheap to, I think to camp was going to be in places was sort of 5 to $6. Um, and, and getting a room was, you know, ten to fifteen dollars. You could pay more for a better room and 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 whatnot. But, and and I kind of had the thing that if I was um, if I was only staying one night, by the time I'd unpacked everything uh, and packed it all up, and usually when I went to leave, there'd usually be a crowd of people, and and I'm good at talking, so I'd end up chatting for ages. So I'd never leave anywhere early. Um, so getting a bed and breakfast for one night was always a better way because I could just jump on a bike and go fairly quickly. If I was staying more than one night, I'd generally camp. Um, so yeah, South Africa was cheap. Uh, Zimbabwe was really expensive because that was dollars. That was US dollars. And so some of the places, Zambia was quite expensive. I mean, South Luanga, although it was cheap for what I had and, and you know, 21 days in this amazing you know to buy a safari package i think i went into the park sort of over a dozen times um you know to buy that kind of package if you were going to fly into zambia and do that it would cost you 
thousands, if not £10,000 or dollars. Um, and I did it, you know, a fraction, absolute fraction. You know, I was talking, I think I worked it out. It was costing me there and I wasn't buying fuel, but I think it cost me about $35 a day there. That was for accommodation, which was the campsite, um, which was about $6 a night. I had beer every day there and I had a full English breakfast every day there and I had a meal pretty much every I cooked a fair bit, but a lot of the time I was there. Um, plus I went in and out the park. So that was park fees to get in. I did a couple of guided tours, which so $35 a day to be in that environment was, wow. I thought was pretty good value. If I rounded it up daily costs, I mean, visas then on average were $50 uh, to get in. I, didn't pre-plan any visas. I did them at the border. I think almost all visas were $50. I think it was free for Malawi. Uh, I think it was $75 for Mozambique. Um, and they were usually a month or two month or maybe six month visas, depending on where you were. Then you'd pay usually about $20, $20 $25 for insurance. And maybe on some places you'd pay a road tax fund and a carbon fund and, and they'd come to like $5 a pop. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think if you if you said, you know, just day to day costs and I, I didn't, I, you know, by the nature of the bike I was riding, when you want to stop on that bike, you've got to stop. You know, when you're, you're knackered at the end of riding that bike every day. Mm-hmm. And if if the place you were stopping at was more expensive, I wasn't going to spend an hour trying to find somewhere cheaper. I was just going to stop because I really needed to stop. <laughs> so, I you know, I, I averaged. I think if you said. $50 a day for, you know, that's a couple of tanks of fuel, a bit of food um, and, and accommodation or campsites um, and then throw in, you know, ship, shipping or flying the bike was not as expensive as I thought. Uh, I flew it out, shipped it home. Um, you know, that that came in quite good. Carney, you know, they're a few thousand pounds, but you get a few thousand, you know, you get so much of it back. Um, so, yeah, I, I would work, I think on, you know, just... 50 to, 50 to 100 dollars a day depending on your luxuries if you want beer every day that's going to cost you a, you know 2 to 5 dollars a day depending on how much you drink mm-hmm. you know that has an impact so but I like beer <laughs> so, so it was worth the money <laughs> and I was on holiday I get, kept telling myself it's not I'm not setting records I'm not you know I'm not doing the Dakar I am technically on holiday and enjoying the freedom so and who knows if I'd ever do this again I was reading my notes today and just you know some of the things i was saying of just like you know where's this going to take me next you know what where's life going to go because i knew it changed me you know i knew i wasn't the same person when i came home so as most of us are when we do that kind of trip i think so so yeah it was um so yeah 50 50 i think would be the minimum i'd really budget for plus obviously shipping and and stuff like that but it ruined you as a person. <laughs> it changed you. Ruined. Yeah, I'm homeless. I'm not homeless because we all get upset because I do live in a house. That's <laughs> but, right. um, but, uh, but yeah, but I, I, I came back a better. It took me quite a while, as as most people do. You know, if you think of a, having a two week holiday and coming back and having a holiday blues, six months uh, away changed me you know you, you come home and it's it's a real shock to the system you know to come back and i think one of the, the big things which which i'd spent literally 30 30 to 40 years dreaming of doing the trip um and the trip didn't disappoint in any shape or form and i wouldn't have changed probably anything uh, on it uh, at all but when i came home i didn't have a dream anymore 
the dream had done. Oh. And it was, that was kind of, I didn't know what to do because it's like I've spent my life and certainly the last five years getting to it right. um, was was immense. You know, everything I bought was, oh, that's going to be me Africa sleeping bag or, you know, even, even you know, anything on the bike, you know, the oil filter, that's my Africa oil filter. <laughs> and so, you know, everything you get so immersed in it and then you come home and, and I was just empty. I mean, work wasn't great when I came back um, for, for different reasons. It's a challenging industry. Um, you know, and I was completely lost. I, I, it was great to see everyone and I really enjoyed that. But after three weeks, you know, no one wants to hear your stories anymore. <laughs> and, and you know, even just going to the pub or going to a gig, you know, I, I was quite, I didn't like being in a big crowd of people, um, which has never been, you know, I never had that problem. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't too twitchy, but it was not, I definitely wasn't as comfortable as I used to be. Um and it, yeah, it took a long time to adjust. And, and luckily, um, uh, I was asked to, first and foremost, at the end of the trip, I, uh, Kobus, who ran uh, the Horizons in, in South Africa, got in touch with me just before I flew out and said, would you come back and do a presentation? Um, so I had that to look forward to. And he, you know, very, very kindly sort of sorted me out a bike and accommodation and everything. I just, and bring Maria. So I, it was great that I could take Maria out and see some, some more of it. So we had a, a big 1200 GS, which we, uh, went off then with, we, uh, after the event there, did my presentation, which I overran quite a bit. Uh, I think Grant was horrified. Grant and Susan were there, um, were horrified, uh, because I just didn't have a clue what I was doing and just carried on talking while people should have been eating dinner. And, and then after that, we went for a week's touring with, with Grant and Susan and, and, uh, quite a few other people, overlanders who were there. It was about eight of us went off for a week, um, uh, traveling around, uh, down by the Kruger, um, so I got to get back to Africa, which sort of scratched that itch again. That that original trip that you did there, that big trip on the 51 Panhead around Southern Africa, would that have been the same if you'd ridden a different bike, if you chose to, if you had the GS at the time and you took that or, or another bike? Do you think that bike flavored the trip in a way that um, that's sort of unique? I, I, I've thought about that many times because I thought, was it the bike? Was it the journey? Was it? And I, I said earlier on that, you know, the bike sort of became secondary about three weeks into the trip where I thought well, it's more about the journey than, than the bike, even though, you know, my connection with the bike is probably stronger than most people's connections from the fact that I built it and designed it and, you know, sort of had it for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more than just a tool to, to, to move me around. Um, uh, so... Uh, but I think it, it, I certainly met some different characters, I think, to maybe who are, that I would have met had I been on a, a GS or a Tiger or, or, or something. I think I still would have had the most amazing time. I mean, you can't not in that environment, but I just think it, it, it just, I think I had a lot of smiles and a lot of interest and a lot of conversations open. And I'm not saying that they wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have had a conversation otherwise, but it just led me in directions which probably I would not have taken had I been on something else. I've been so welcomed into the Overland community since the trip. I mean, Paddy Tyson from from Overland Event has, has, you know, very kindly always asked me to come to his events. I've I've done all the Horizons events when I can. you know, it'd be nice, and and knowing, uh, I love doing presentations at these events, and knowing how much I was inspired by going to these, and and you know, reading the books, 
as I say, Sam's into Africa probably changed changed my life an awful lot. Coming home, reading Spencer's Spencer Conway's book probably is the book which has taken me back to Africa. I mean, his has come out quite recently. Um, uh, you know, it, it just, they inspire me so much. And I'd love just to, to think that someone somewhere might pick up my book thinking I can't do a journey because I've got, you know, an old bike or not the right bike because the marketing men have got to them, um, you know, and then read the book and say, hey, plenty of I can go and do it. And, and if someone could experience, you know, even anything that I've done, uh, that would be a, a happy, you know, that'd be a happy day. That's what it's about is inspiring people to to to, to hopefully go and do their own adventures. Yeah, definitely. Gareth, it was great to sit down and talk with you and hear about your story. Um, thank you very much for your time. Jim, and, and thank you for the interest. I mean, you know, after these last few years, where, and certainly this year, where everything seems to, you know, has been challenging for everyone i think i mean to keep us all um to keep us all entertained with the with the radio and the podcasts and stuff and and you know to be asked was was a you know sort of real um uplift for me i think you know we've, we've all been a bit down in these you know thinking what how the hell are we going to get out of this and where are we going to go and just to, to just rekindle a little bit of uh spirit again is so yeah no it was a real real honor to be asked That was Gareth Jones speaking about his African adventure on his 1951 Harley Panhead. Uh, We've got a load of great photos from Gareth's adventure in the show notes for this episode at AdventureRiderRadio.com. You just go there and find this episode and and look at the show notes, including some uh, really telling photos, like those ones that where Gareth was mentioning about going to the mountaintop and meeting the other riders on dirt bikes and adventure bikes, and they couldn't believe he made it out on his Harley. Uh, Some shots from that, and it's quite interesting to see. Again, all in the show notes on our website for this episode, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, MotoBreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that, and like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. Hello, this is Travis. And Chantal Gill. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Radio.